0: Have you ever experienced something that can only be explained by the power of God? Some movement or some group of people so filled with the Holy Spirit that you believe? all over again that God is real and God is with us. Heaven moving on earth. The Holy Spirit's movement power and grace can be learned and experienced like an artist displays their paintings or a dancer performs the steps step by step. We're seeing God's kingdom spread on earth. A hurting world seeks the hope of Jesus. So we the church pray And we, the church, declare a spirit move. And we, the church, move in step with the spirit. We are propelled by the power of the living God at work in our midst to bring good news to all people. Spirit, move.
1: Good morning. So glad that you're here. You made it. You made it this morning. Good morning. We want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online, especially you in the north and Port Perry. Good morning to you. Last weekend was a significant weekend in our church. So much was taking place. We had a a gathering in the last two weeks where we dedicated uh, the retrofit in this building. We had large announcements in our family ministries and uh, good transitions beginning to take place. We gathered together last Sunday, and in both Port Perry and here, the worship was sweet. And I was preaching this message on a biblical view of expectations, and there was great momentum. And then many of you heard, some of you were there that as I was impassionately pleading with our church about biblical suffering suddenly what we jokingly call the screaming monkey the fire alarm uh, went off during the service now number one I want to say thank you to everyone who helped us out and did really well we did really well as a church and uh, as I was thinking about that experience, by the way, it was a curious little six-year-old who pulled the fire alarm. He came to apologize this week in a bow tie, so he sucked up very well to me. Uh, he wrote me a letter, and, and he genuinely said, I'm so sorry, it said pull, so I did it. I mean, how, how, how can you argue uh, with that? You know, we were uh, smiling about that this week, thanking God that everything went well, but that image kept sticking in my mind. Last week was a significant weekend for our church. Momentum, uh, movement of the Spirit, genuine worship, strong preaching, momentum to the east and the north, physical changes here, staff transit. All this is going place. in the middle of all that suddenly. There's this fire alarm pulled. And I said, see, that is such an amazing gift to us as an image. Because during great times, during great works of the Holy Spirit, In spirit moves where things are going very well, much of the time sovereignly, it's not a six-year-old who does this, it's actually the Spirit of God Himself who pulls the fire alarm and actually changes the environment because He actually wants to cause an exodus that is unexpected. We're in Acts 13 today, one of the great fire alarm pullings in the Bible. In Acts 12, the story moves from Peter to Paul. And the expanded mission begins to actually reach out to many of those who are not ethnically or religiously Jewish. In chapter 13 through 17, we'll see this after later in the spring, the good news begins starting to spread to vast amounts of different people. Those, of course, who are Jewish by ethnicity or God-fears who follow the Jewish faith, they're reached out to, but then suddenly the gospel pivots to folk religion, those who are involved in multiple thousands of variations of spiritual power, and then the gospel pivots again and is given to those involved in other formal religious systems, and then the Spirit of God pivots again, and we'll see that the good news starts to speak to and encounter those with knowledge of God outside of holy history, those who are the philosophers of the age. But Acts chapter 13 is the dividing point where the gospel begins to go way beyond the margins. Acts 11.19 tells us the context of how we get to 13. 13. It says, Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was murdered traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word of God only among the Jews. Now, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to Jesus. Now, uh, the news of this reached the church back in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas all the way to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of God, what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord well, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he finally found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met together with the church and taught great numbers of people, and how the disciples were first called Christians and Antioch. Well, then when you skip over to 13, you begin to see what the flavor and the look of the church is. It says in Acts 13.1, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. You had Barnabas and you had Simon called Niger. You had Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so you have this dynamic, unbelievable church. Think about the power of this For the first time in history, Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews who have reconciled together in Jesus are now telling Greeks about Jesus. They've come to faith, and for one whole year, they are sitting together now worshiping the same God. This has never been seen in Jewish history, not like this. But how does the beginning of the movement look? Amazingly, they start with spiritual gifts. And they begin to show us that spiritual gifts, once again, are central in ministry. Now, two specifically are mentioned here. You've got prophecy and teaching. Don't mix the two gifts up. They're not the same. Prophets are ones that respond to the distinct movements of the Spirit in the moment. Or as another wrote, we use this definition here. A person operating with the gift of prophecy, the New Testament gift, Has the capacity to deliver truth in a public way, in a predictive nature, or as a situational word for God in order to correct or exhort or edify or console believers and convince non-believers of God's truth. It's this dynamics, uh, move of the Spirit, utterances in church community, while teaching is a more sustained ministry. It's preaching through the Scriptures, week in and week out, instructing and explaining and and exposing and expositing the biblical text so we understand who God is and what He wants and what He commands us to do and what He promises to us. So you have word gifts and power gifts marking this early church, strong teaching and situational prompting of the Spirit, but so much more is already going on. See the revolutionary power of the gospel and what is already done. You have Jews and Greeks, like I said, already meeting together, which in itself is shocking, but look at the list. Beyond Saul and Barnabas, there are multiple other keys, uh, key leaders identified. Now, who are they? Well, Simon is called Niger. He's given this Latin title. Why? Because of his skin color. He is very dark, deeply black, African. And right beside him, you have Lucius of Cyrene. Well, Lucius is a common Roman name, but he's Cyrenian. Well, where's that? That's Libya in our vocabulary today. Oh, and then there's Mannion, who's been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, in Greek, this actually reads that this man is Herod's foster brother or stepbrother. It was a common practice 2,000 years ago to assign boys of a similar age to royal children so they would have friends that they could trust as they grew up. So this is shocking and quite crazy. This guy was one of Herod's closest friends. This guy actually is Herod's stepbrother. Now, this Herod, by the way, it always gets confusing, is not the Herod from last week. This Herod is the one from the Christmas story. This is the Herod that encountered the wise men. This is the Herod who was so thrown off by the idea that Jesus might be the king of the Jews. He murdered all those children. This is the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. And think about it. So, best friends and stepbrothers are now on opposite sides. One tries killing Jesus, one in a drunken sexual rage actually decapitates his cousin, and the other now is actually part of the Jesus movement. Never miss this as we get going this morning, the gospel always divides family, friends, and co-workers. But let's not run too fast from the list. What an amazing list of people we tend to read lists and get bored, skip them, or move on, but do you see the non-homogeneous church people and now leaders from all backgrounds? You've got Jews and non-Jews and Africans and North Africans and Romans and Greeks. God, through the work of Jesus' his Son and by the literal presence of the Holy Spirit, is bringing people together to form one body so that they will actually be able to encounter the living God of heaven and earth. And what is so shocking about this is this group of people would never be around each other socially let alone religiously let alone philosophically let alone economically and yet now here they are worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. While they were worshiping verse 2 the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit spoke. You were to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now if you're a note-taking person you need to circle that word worshiping Because in English, we read over it, but we miss the power and the punch behind this word. Why? Because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word worshiping was almost exclusively used for Levites and priests who did actual formal ceremonial acts in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is revolutionary because this reads like this. That Greeks and Romans and Africans and North Africans and Jews and non-Jews, as they gather in Jesus to fast and to pray together and to be taught together and to prophesy to each other, as they are doing this, they are now the true new priesthood and they have actually replaced the old priesthood because they actually are the temple of God. Remember, at this moment in history, the temple is still present in Jerusalem. People are still worshiping there. They're still killing animals there. But the church, the gathered people of God, the reverse of Babel, the restoration of Eden is now actually found in this small group of people. They are the actual temple of God. And if you are a Christian here this morning, so are you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God. You're not your own anymore. You've been bought at at a price. Honor God with your own body. So the Holy Spirit is now residing in His temple, living in and among this diverse group of people. And as God has always done in His temple, He shows up and He speaks and He acts. The Spirit of God, through his gifts of prophecy, he chooses to tell his community through the spiritual gift that the will of Jesus is that two of the most eminent, most gifted, most strong teachers and leaders in the church now need to leave. This is when the Spirit of God pulls the fire alarm in the middle of everything going well and says, I'm throwing everything into chaos and you two are getting out. Think about the implication of this. The two best leaders, the two best thinkers, the two best preachers, the two most anointed people are being called out of this truly multicultural, Eden-restoring, Babel-reversing experience. And once again, we are confronted with the truth of mission versus comfort, the next move of God versus the last one, or if you know your Old Testament, yesterday's manna versus today's. Fear or faith? This is exactly what Philip faced, remember back in Acts 8, when he was leading this unbelievable move of God in Samaria. And while this unbelievable epic thing was taking place, God removed him. Now, notice when the Spirit of God speaks. He speaks the prompting, the prophecy during times of prayer and fasting. Now, I'm just going to bang the drum again because it matters. Because here, once again, we see what a normal Christian church is supposed to look like, feel like, and function like. Spiritual gifts, like I've preached for years here, are the only ongoing guaranteed place of power to serve from, period. And spiritual practices are the guaranteed place of meeting God. They become the vehicles to walk with God after you've met God through Jesus and His Spirit. Spiritual practices, holy habits, become the ongoing place where we are transformed, where we are changed, but they also provide the space, they clear the ground, so we get to hear, to get permission to keep in step with the spirit. And like I've preached so many times, Jesus chose to demonstrate this to us. He used spiritual gifts to serve, and he only used those, and he used spiritual disciplines to listen to what his father wanted him to do. And so local churches have to replicate what our head is doing. We have to have the same posture and be in the same place. And so after they fasted and prayed, verse 3, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So after worship, after listening and prompting and spiritual gifts, that leads to planning. The leaders place their hands on them. This, by the way, doesn't give them like a super energy boost of the Spirit. This is not the giving of gifts. This is a way of affirming they are of God, from God. This is of the Spirit, and they are being sent out and being affirmed as they do it. So the two of them, these great prominent leaders, leave the church They're sent on their way, notice what the scripture says, by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and then sailed there to Cyprus. So another Holy Spirit move has begun, and Luke once again enforces the idea, it's his Holy Spirit who sends, it's the Holy Spirit who ordains, it's the Holy Spirit who literally moves the body of Jesus to do Jesus' bidding. And just like Jesus, when Jesus was filled with the Spirit and started his ministry, The Spirit of God is taking these two great leaders out of an amazing church, and he is sending them right into danger, into a war zone. Now, they end up in Cyprus, a land occupied over history by the Greeks and the Phoenicians. Later, it's annexed by Rome, and during the time of Augustus, it was a separate province, and it was under the leadership of a proconsul. And this proconsul is about to actually become a follower of Jesus, too. It says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John, that's John Mark, was with them as their helper. So they go to the east coast of Cyprus, and they went to the Jewish worship houses called synagogue. And by the way, if you know your Bible at all, Paul follows this pattern everywhere he goes. Why does he start with the Jewish people? Because he knows they have the most in common. They have the most bridges built. There's a shared ethnicity, a shared history, a shared theology. There is a magnetic point. So much is already in common. He starts with them. And this is critical that we get this once again. Christianity is not a separate religion from Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism because Jesus really is the King of the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the great I Am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel found in flesh. And so he starts with his people. That's why he says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the non jew And so they spend time there speaking about Jesus. But then it says they traveled through the whole island until they came to Phaos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And now the conflict begins. They travel west and they strategically go to the provincial government in its capital. And once again, we see the pattern we've talked about throughout this whole series emerge again. Every single time the good news of Jesus is spoken, every single time miracles are done in the name of Jesus in a new territory where the gospel has never been demonstrated or spoken, there is always a demonic encounter. There is always a turf war. Why? Because the Bible teaches that Satan is the god of this world and the kingdom of God is invading. It started with Jesus, now through his church. And so in the book of Acts... Time and time again, when the gospel breaks into a new region, the demonic use both non-Christians and Christians to try to stop the kingdom of God, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 8, Philip and John, right, and Peter have to deal with the sorcerer Simon, Acts 13. As we come into the spring, Acts 16, Acts 19, this happens again and again. Now, the coming clash is very important, scene four, very important. Luke wants to distinguish between the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the demonic. We should note this morning that Luke never doubts the ability or gifts of those who are empowered by evil, nor does he dismiss them as fake or fraudulent. He believes they are real, and don't forget he's a medical doctor. And not only that, he never also says they know that they are in league with evil. Now to him and to us here at C4, the issue that we're about to experience and look through is not the gifts themselves, but the power and the source of the gifts, The demonic in our day have not changed, and throughout Scripture, they almost always do the exact same things that people do when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. People that are filled with Satan, whether they know it's Satan or not, tend to do the same spiritual things that people who are filled with the Spirit of Christ do. They are exactly the same, but the source is different. See, that is why Satan is called the spirit of Antichrist, the one who looks like Jesus, the one that functions like Jesus, the one that does things like Jesus, but is not Jesus in the end. Now, their goal is to deceive and to destroy. It is not to save or bring peace. And most importantly, they will never give glory to God, the Father. That is why we must know the Scriptures as Christians in the most profound, in-depth way, so we have theological discernment to know what is happening in front of us. Weird or not is no longer the criteria. What is the power source behind what is happening in front of me? That is why the scriptures must be absolutely understood, but it is also why in every local church, all the spiritual gifts must be affirmed and mentored because people with the spiritual gift of discernment, through them the Spirit of God will tell us what the power is behind the person. Well, the clash comes. Bar-Jesus was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man, and he chose to send for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Now, Sergius Paulus is a really interesting guy. Here's what we know from historical sources. He's actually from one of the most famous political families In the first and second century AD. His family held massive political rank throughout the Roman Empire and his actual family was known at the highest courts in Rome. This man probably would know Caesar himself. He's an intelligent man and he wants to understand. And then there's Bar-Jesus. He's a syncretistic Jew who mixes the Jewish faith with occultism. Iliumus is a Hebrew word meaning male occultic worker or sorcerer. Now he's the proconsul, he's with the proconsul's court because the proconsul believes this man has the power to break the bonds of fate. Now the kingdom of darkness, follow this, knew that Saul and Barnabas were coming. And so it is not a mistake that Bar-Jesus just happens to be in the very spot where they're coming. And think how confusing this is. He's Jewish, Saul's Jewish, Barnabas's Jewish. They all claim to be Jews. And not only that, Paul, or Saul, and Barnabas are preaching Jesus, and his man's name is Jesus. Actually, his name, Bar-Jesus in Aramaic means, I am the son of salvation. His very name fills the room with confusion. Which Jesus is right? Which Jesus is Savior? Which Jew is preaching the right thing? Now, there's a human agenda here and a demonic one. The simple human one is this, if these men convince my boss that they are right and I am wrong, I'm out of a job. But the spirits that are in him that give him the ungodly abilities to be a genuine sorcerer are opposing the spirit of God that are found in Paul and Barnabas. See, this is a clash of kingdoms. God versus Satan, good versus evil, true gifting versus false gifting. One person is plugged into the spirit of Antichrist. The other two are filled with the spirit of Christ. So now the question, why the fight here and why the fight now? Well, here's why it's happening. Because this is the first formal introduction of the gospel to the Roman world in all of history. Why is this clash happening here? Because this is the beachhead. This is the D-Day event. This is the beginning of the gospel, not just happening on the ground with a few people. This is the formal introduction of the gospel into the religious, into the legal, into the political, into the actual life of the whole Roman Empire. You bet you Satan's going to show up and try to stop this. Well, Paul knows exactly what's going on, seen and unseen. So Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked right at Iliumus and he said these words, you're a child of the devil. How to win friends and influence, right? (laughs) You're an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Whoa. The Spirit of God so fills Paul at this moment, under the influence of the way, the truth, and the life, he not only exposes this man for who he is, he confronts what is inspiring this man, and he gives him a piercing question. Will you stop, not stop, making crooked the straight paths of God? Now, those words should sound familiar to you because you hear them every Christmas when you hear Handel's Messiah. They come right out of Isaiah 44. Remember the valley shall be me exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight, the rough places plain. See, this is the great difference between God's work and Satan's work. Peace versus chaos. He makes things level, Satan makes them unlevel, God makes things straight, Satan makes things crooked. Now, Paul, using the spiritual gift of discernment and also with profound understanding, theological understanding of the scriptures, says to this Jewish man who is blending the true faith with false power, he says, you are not of God, you are not the son of salvation, you are a child of the devil you are false, your power is false, and you are not here by mistake. The devil has placed you here intentionally to stop, to thwart, to confuse, to pervert, to overcome the good news of Jesus, so it cannot take a foothold in the Roman Empire. While we're here by God himself, we were through prophecy sent by the church to this very place, and so this is how it's going to go down. The hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately a mist and darkness came over Bar-Jesus, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. See, the battle again is not between Paul and Bar-Jesus. The battle is between the Spirit of God and the spirits that are found in Bar-Jesus. And of course, there is no doubt who wins. It says that God blinds him. Imagine that on a Sunday morning. It was an amazing morning. Someone got blinded in Jesus' name. Oh, okay. Now listen to the reason why this is so significant. It says that he is blinded forever. No, for a time. So many preachers miss this when they preach this. This is mercy. God's discipline always has a silver lining of grace. Remember Babel? God could have wiped us all out. He broke our languages. Remember the flood? He saved humanity through Noah and even gave us a rainbow. Remember Jonah ran, threw over right fish, vomited out. See, this happens again and again. Or who just blinded Bar Jesus? Oh right, this guy's name is Saul. He himself a few years earlier was on his way to murder and to imprison Christians, and he got blinded by Jesus, and that blinding actually was the gift of God to lead Saul to become a follower of Jesus. So can you imagine in this moment, here is Paul sitting in this place. He blinds the guy, Now, guarantee he's thinking, man, that was me just a few years ago. This is pretty amazing. But here's the point. He has done this, and God is a allowed this because he wants not only to see Sergius Paulus become a follower, he wants to show Bar-Jesus who has greater power and authority because Bar-Jesus functions in a world that says who has the greater power, that is who I should be plugged into. This is giving him space to see if he'll repent and become a follower of Jesus too. Well, when the proconsul saw what happened, he believed. He was amazed at the teachings about Jesus. Here, by the way, we see the power of the both-and and the rejection of either-or in evangelism. The proconsul saw what happened. He saw the power encounter. By the way, miraculous events, whether deliverances or healings or overcoming things in nature or raising from that. See, they're always given to open the door. They're not the gospel. They're always the trigger, the taste, the affirmation of what the people that are preaching is true. They direct him, but notice what it says here. It's not the miracle that led Sergius Paulus to faith. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He believes on the preaching of what Paul and Barnabas are saying. The miracle opens the door, but the explicit preaching of the word of God moves him across the line of faith. And so Jesus, once again, through his people, overcomes the presence of evil, just like Jesus did himself when he was on earth. He brings another to himself, this time a high-ranking Roman official, who shockingly is loved by two Jews that should hate him because he represents everything to them about opposition and domination. And the love of God is given so strongly that Saul, now Paul, and Barnabas realize that Sergius Paulus not only deserves eternal life, but he is made to be part of the temple of God, and he is actually made to be part of the church, And he is made to have an eternal relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. The question is, when you come out of a text like this, what's the point? There's some very interesting things beyond just the normal application of this where I want to sit today. Number one, are you bar Jesus? Are you resisting God through your acts, through your thoughts, through your life? Do you actually represent or resist those know Jesus? Do you try swaying people from truth? Maybe you're listening online and you hate everything the church represents. Maybe you're actually here sitting among us this morning and actually you're here in secret because you are involved in dark, wicked things and you're here actually to fast and pray against us. Well, God comes at this moment and he says to you, I'm giving you a chance to turn, to find hope and friendship and forgiveness and pure love and pure power. There's always love. It's the great old litany from the old Anglican prayer book that helps us. This is what actually God is saying to you. Remember not, Lord, our offenses of our forefathers. Neither take thou vengeance on our sins. Spare us, good Lord. Spare your people uh, whom thou hast redeemed with thy most precious blood. Don't be angry with us forever. See, the moment is being given to you right now. And the command is, be like Sergius Paulus, and be like Paul. Give up your false power. Give up your self-trust. Give up your position and ability. You think your power is strong this morning? You think what is in you is stronger than what is in me or in us here? You're wrong. Who got blinded in the end? Paul or Bar-Jesus? If you're a person who functions in supernatural power from the other side, let me say this to you directly. You want real power? then you meet Jesus first. You repent and turn from your life of wickedness and your life of unholy power and you give it up and you learn something called humility and meekness and you will be loved in a way you've never been loved before and then you will be given power that will far outshine what you walk in now. Maybe you're a person here today and you're not barred Jesus in the supernatural sense but you're barred Jesus in the job sense So funny when I was writing this this week, I just this this stuck with me. Not just oh, that's an intellectual thing. No, no, deeper. Maybe you're listening this morning. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're in the north this morning. And the only reason why you have not become a Christian is it will cost you your job. Maybe you're a person in a reputable job, but actually what you do in your job is wicked. It's crooked. You steal or you manipulate. And you know that if you really become a follower of Jesus like your wife has become or your children has become or your husband or whatever, you'll have to give it up and come clean. Maybe actually you're involved in literally crooked things. Maybe you're a drug dealer. I have no clue who you are or what it is, but let me just say this to you. Jesus at this moment says your job is not worth hell. Your job is not worth not knowing love. Your job is not worth not knowing forgiveness. And here's what Jesus says directly to you, whoever you are this morning. Jesus says directly to you, I will provide for you. I will sustain you. I will forgive you. You are called to trust me. And temporary blindness and loss is worth eternal life. So if that is you, whoever you might be, this is all you need to say. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come undo me and make me new. For many of us who've crossed the line of faith, there's some other things we need to talk about this morning. I've read this passage multiple times, preached it many times, but I had never caught it till this week. Antioch is actually what C4 is looking like, feeling like, and becoming. If you're an elder here this morning in our church, you're a staff member, a pastor, a key volunteer. If you belong to our church, you've just joined us or you've been with us for years, you need to lean into this moment and understand this. This is a vision moment. If you pair Acts chapter 2 and Acts 13, you will see and feel and understand what C4 is becoming week by week. A strong church with strong teaching an openness to all the gifts, including the power gifts, a place of growing mentorship, a place of influence for the kingdom within a region and beyond a region, spiritual disciplines being valued and fought for, mutual submission, trying to be understood, strong leadership, growing in cultural diversity, all the spiritual gifts becoming the center of how we serve, a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading and prompting, which leads to formal planning, the staying and going of leaders as the Spirit of God calls us in and out. And this is the type of church that Jesus is designing and forming us to be in our post-Christian culture. And if there's one thing I'm asking you to do as one of your pastors this week in your connect groups or beyond is this, we need to pray that this Antioch-like model grows wider and longer and deeper because this is actually the DNA design that God is giving this church. But the most important application today Is the obvious one. The two most important, most eminent, most gifted leaders are removed when the Holy Spirit pulls a fire alarm and says, everything's changing. Once again, we see what God keeps doing. Do you remember back in Acts 8? Just stay with me for a moment, please. When I referenced this, Philip, with complete trust and obedience, leaves his thriving Samaria ministry. Do you remember it? He was commanded to leave. And remember I said, why in the world would any pastor or leader or deacon want to leave a ministry like this? Hundreds and hundreds of baptisms, blood enemies becoming friends, miracles, deliverances, large crowds, and Peter and John, like the, oh my goodness, leaders show up and they say, this is of God. Like this is a pastor's dream. Who doesn't want to be part of a church where all that's going on? And right in the middle of it, God shows up to Philip through an angel and says, you leave all this, you leave the show, The best church, the most, you leave and you go in the middle of nowhere and wait for someone you don't, just go. Remember what I said internally for us, it's critical, let me say it again. Within the next 24 months, God willing, we're going to have four sites in this church. This site, the north site, to the east and to the west. And I said these words and you all laughed and then I didn't laugh and looked at you and took my glasses off. And I said these words that God is not going to ask some but many of you to leave Ajax to make room for more neighbors and friends. Remember I said mission over comfort, vision first. God is going to call some of you to go north to strengthen the Port Perry site. And I don't know if you remember, but I actually said God had already asked some people to do it and they had not obeyed. Well, what's amazing is some people knew that was true. They're already in the north right now. Thank you for your obedience. More of you will be called to the north, the hinterlands of the north. He's going to call you. Others of you, hundreds of you are going to be asked to go east. I'm Yes, there's one. He's already in. And I jokingly, not jokingly said, we're literally going to push you out. And I said, we're going to ask hundreds of you to go east because you may drive 40 minutes or 30 minutes to get here, but your friends and family will not. This is about salvation, evangelism, and mission, not about comfort. And I said, hopefully, God willing, within 24 months, we're going to do the same thing. And hundreds of you will go west. And I said, we will know that God is doing a great thing here and we're being successful when you come back and visit Ajax and someone sitting in your precious seat and you say, what are you doing in my seat? And they say, it's my seat. I've never met you before. <laughs> and that will be the sign of great success. And they will be doing your volunteer role. And as one church, we will see God's work from north to south to east to west. I have no doubt that we're going to reach 10,000 people. It's a sovereign decision. It's already done. It's done. But <laughs> there's a deeper call here in this passage. Do you see it? The Holy Spirit, in the middle of an epic move of God, sends out the best and the brightest, not only to leave the local church to another area, sort of in the suburbs of Antioch, no, no, sends them out to other people groups in other lands that have no witness at all and no church. Let me just bring this home this morning. There are hundreds of millions of people at this moment, at 1018, right now, that have no Christian in their life. Millions have never met a Christian. There is no church. We live in, listen, you don't like the preaching style, you choose the buffet in Durham. You don't like the youth ministry, the worship style, you go, great, here's my 40 different options. Now, we are blessed, and I thank God, and that's why every week we pray for another church. We are so thankful that the body of Christ is so large and growing in health in this region, but there are millions that have no access to any of this at all millions of villages and huge cities and communities that have little or no Christian witness at all. And what do we see in the book of Acts? God's heart is for the ends of the earth as much it is as it is for Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And in this case, God sends out the best and the brightest to be engaged in long-term cross-cultural church planting among unreached people groups. So let me just give you the stats. By the way, take out your Connect Group books and write these down. It's sobering and it's critical. There are 7 billion people on this planet right now. Sociologists tell us that that means that there are 16,547 different tribal groups or people groups or family groups that make up the 7 billion. Out of that 16,000 plus, are you ready? 6,693 people groups on earth right now at 10.20 in the morning have less than 5% Christian witness and less than 2% evangelical witness and a vast majority of them have 0.1 or less. That means 40.4% of the world's population has less than 5% Christian witness in any form. 3.1 billion people right now don't have access directly to the gospel. Let me just list a few names. Algeria, huge swaths of Algeria, Afghanistan, central Cambodia. Though there are millions of believers in China, there are massive people groups that have little or no access to the gospel Huge swaths of India, Indonesia, Japan, North Korea, Morocco, Burma, Pakistan, Turkey, Bangladesh, Uzbekistan, Yemen, just to name a few. It's interesting, you know, here this morning at our site, uh, Pastor Lori was hosting and she mentioned she was on a trip in India. They were debriefing this week and telling a story about how they were with a church planter working in the Sunderban Islands, that are extremely remote islands. Please hear this. There was one pastor assigned to 50 islands trying to establish a church on each one of them. Well, when Pastor Lori and the team finally arrived at one of those islands with this church planter, they were surrounded by a huge Hindu community and telling the good news about Jesus. And in the middle of this massive crowd, there was this one woman who was weeping and her hands were raised, unlike the whole rest of the crowd. And they said, there's something different about this woman. And you can ask the team for the whole story, but they went and they talked to this woman. And they found out she is the only Christian for 20 years on this whole island. And she had been praying for 20 years for Christians just to show up. She had never been able to sing with another Christian in her life. And she had been praying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, would you bring the community to me? You can understand 21 years earlier, there's a good chance there were no Christians, no bookstores, no podcasts, no, I'm going to choose another church. She's the church, period. And the world, 3 billion people plus are like that. You say, well, okay, that's true. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is not that I'm going to say, so we're all leaving. But here is the answer. You say, what would be a success metric for you, John, out of a sermon? Here it is. That the whole church would be so radically open to the Spirit of God, first by themselves and then in community, that every single elder in this church, every pastor in this church, every staff member in this church, every lay person in this church, everyone who makes up this church would do this. And say to the Spirit of Jesus, What do you say to me? Do I stay? Do I go east? Do I go north? Do I go west? Do you ask me to leave this country? Do you ask me to leave C4 to go to another? Like, there is a radical sovereign trust we see in Antioch where pastors weren't trying to hold people in their church for numbers. And everyone went, well, of course we'll obey the spirit, whatever he says. So funny, for us who grew up in church, we used to say things like this, well, I love being a Christian, but it just, oh God, never call me to be a missionary. Anyone prayed that? Not in this movement, you don't get to say that. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking only for a radical openness where every person has the courage, no matter your age, you could be 80, this this is for you. You could be a teenager. This is where we all go, Spirit of God, do you say anything to me? Do you say anything to my family? Do you say anything to our connector? Do you say anything? And he might say nothing, or he might tell you to go east or west or north or south, or he might say Cambodia or somewhere else, but it's this where we begin. And when you hear something, you test it in community. Remember, it was done in community. It's not Jesus and you, it's Jesus and us. So could we do that? Could you in the north do that? Trust him. Jesus is good. We sing it all the time. Trust him in this moment. Do not be afraid. Because we've all committed to see the gospel go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? So, put your hands out your hands out. Don't be afraid. You say, what about my kids? Put your hands out. What about my comfort? Put your hands out. Put your hands out. And just say, okay. So Lord, number one, here's what we pray across our community. If Bar Jesus is among us or listening, (laughs) blind them for a moment so they get saved.